Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Soho Bites. If you've heard the show before, you'll have noticed that I'm not Jingen Young. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I'm the producer of Soho Bites. Jingen has now departed this parish to concentrate on her various other projects, among them her play, Life and Death of a Journalist, which is being produced next year at the Vault Festival in Waterloo. There'll be details about that in upcoming episodes, and she leaves with our best wishes and thanks. And she will, in fact, be popping back from time to time, sooner rather than later. And of course, at Soho Bites, we still talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. Stimulants of various kinds are not entirely unknown in Soho, apparently. And although we will be looking at hard drugs later in the series, you can think of this as the gateway episode, as this week we're talking about coffee. Coffee and Soho are synonymous. Everybody knows and loves Bar Italia. It's been going strong in the same location on Frith Street since 1949, predating even the 1950s coffee shop revolution. In the first half of the programme, Nika Garrett from mylondonwalks.co.uk joins us to talk about the history of coffee in Soho and tells us where she enjoys the best espresso martini in London. In the second half of the show, it's movie talk as usual, and we're talking about a Soho classic with a coffee theme. Of course, it's Espresso Bongo from 1959. Writer and broadcaster Sean Ed William discusses this Soho-based musical, which seems to be loved and loathed in equal measure with Jing and Young. Oh, did I say she'd left? Well, she has, but this was recorded a few weeks ago, so stick around for that. Originally from Poland, Nika Garrett is a London tour guide and runs several walking tours in Soho, including one about the history of coffee. I asked her onto the show to talk about the 1950s coffee boom, when, hot on the heels of Bar Italia, dozens of themed coffee shops sprang up all over London, and in Soho in particular. When we first met, I have to admit, I was a bit nervous about the quality of the beverage I would be able to offer, as I know her to be a coffee aficionado. But as it turned out, Nika was taking no risks and had, to my relief, brought her own bottle of water with her. Fully hydrated and adequately caffeinated, I asked her what started this 1950s Soho coffee revolution. There wouldn't have been a revolution if we hadn't had a gadget machine, uh, this lovely invention from Italy in late 1940s. I drink black coffee. Loves a hand-me-down. The idea was to have a machine that would create this crema naturale. So if you make your espresso using a proper espresso machine, you should see this layer, sort of light color, on top of your coffee. So that's your crema. So uh, that wouldn't have been really possible before. And also before, coffee tasted bitter. So this new invention solved those problems. People traveled as well. So people would have gone to, to Italy and they would have known what 
proper coffee should taste like. Coffee was really quite disgusting here in, in this country. And that's probably what prompted Pino Riservato. He was Italian. He really didn't like coffee here. Coffee back then was even mixed with things like chicory or ground acorns. He had this idea that he would bring gadget machines here and and, uh, impress the catering world and everyone would have a gadget machine. And the licenses were quite impossible back then, so he in fact uh, smuggled the first five gadget machines via Dublin and the Isle of Wight. So he opened his own, he established Reservato and Partners LTD at 10 Dean Street, and that's where he could show off the new invention, and uh, he had an espresso bar below. And only from that moment we could talk really about Mocha Bar, which opened in 1953 at 29 Rift Street. The proprietor was uh, someone called Maurice Ross. However, Reservato provided him obviously with gadget machine. Pretty soon Mocha was selling 1,000 cups uh, a day. Pace the floor, stop and stare. Espresso bars were associated very much with music and teenagers, so we have heard a lot probably about Two Eyes coffee shop, but just next to it was another one, Heaven and Hell. And if I could step back in time, I would like to go into it. The ground floor would have been all in white with some cherubs around, so that's obviously heaven. And then it would go down through a sort of gaping mouth of a beast right into hell, where you would see a full-size devil painted, I think, on the fire exit door. Uh, all black and red and flames and so on. And I remember reading that not many people wanted to stay in heaven, everybody wanted to go to hell. I would love to go back to the times when we had Le Macabre. Now, if you go to Mead Street, there's no sign, there is no plaque at number 23. But it was one of the most popular coffee bars of the day. And as the name suggests, it would have been very much macabre. So you would have skeletons and uh, nude ladies in the decor and sit on coffins and and listen to the very much funeral music from your jukebox. The motto was um, your coffee on the coffin. The cat's whisker was, again, like two eyes espresso bar that would welcome all those teenagers that wanted to jive and and listen to to music of the day. It was at one Kingley Street. But it was so small that it actually started a new craze. It was called a hand jive. So there were all sorts of moves you had to learn to dance it with your hands because you could really not move at all. And not surprisingly, it was closed down because of overcrowding. There was one in Old Compton Street that was known as the French 
not to be confused with a French house, that's a different story. The French was more of a cafe, and it was uh, run by a Belgian called Bernard. Now, the decor was all brown, brown floors, brown walls, brown ceiling and furniture. From outside, it looked like a newsagent uh, with French magazines and, and French newspapers. But when, when you walked in, it, it was uh, clear it's all about coffee and, and a place to socialize. And it was really loved by the bohemian artists and intellectuals. So among uh, the patrons, we have Francis Bacon, Lucien Freud, Frank Norman, also Quentin Crisp. Oh, I'm afraid it can't be done. There was a character that uh, would frequent the French, known as Ironfoot Jack. His right foot, I think, was shorter, so he had this boot with an iron sort of contraption underneath, and he styled himself, uh, you know, long hair and Homburg hat and long black cape. So he he sort of looked elegant, but apparently he didn't care much uh, for hygiene. So when he entered, everyone knew it before they had seen him. Apparently he was quite a bore. (laughs) Or at least Daniel Farson in his book, um, Soho in the 50s, remembers him as as quite a boring character. In In an ideal world, I would spend the whole day drinking flat white until I think it's appropriate to to switch to espresso martini. (laughs) So no sleep here, obviously. If you go to Barrack Street, basically you have best flat white and best espresso martini. If you know flat white coffee bar there, uh, this is actually the place that started back in 2005 serving flat white here in London. And flat white is something that can't be just a different type of cappuccino. It's not something that they can give you another shot of espresso because you say it doesn't taste properly. So flat white has to be done properly. Flat white is an art. So your milk has to be velvety. It's got some micro bubbles, micro foam. So it's not as frothy as cappuccino. Next to Metcalfe, you have My Place Soho, where coffee is gorgeous, but they also have the best espresso martini in town. Now, espresso martini has to have proper froth, which takes a lot of shaking, and I think nobody does it better than Dini in My Place Soho. The first espresso martini was served in Soho, in Soho Brasserie, uh, in Old Compton Street. The barista there was asked apparently by a young woman. Some say this woman became one of her supermodels. Pardon my French, as they say. Make me something that will pick me up first and then fuck me up later. And uh, Bratzel did a great job. Um, uh, and that's what uh, was originally known as vodka espresso, but then became espresso martini. So the beginnings of the whole story is like 1980s, but it was 1990s when it really became popular. And I think the more and more coffee shops today have to cater for those people like me who not only drink the best coffee in town, but also want the best coffee-based cocktails, including espresso martini. 
Thank you to Nika Garrett for coming in to talk to me about one of her favourite subjects. Who knew the hand jive was invented in Soho? You can find contact details for Nika at the end of the show and on this episode's show notes. And incidentally, off mic, Nika pointed out that although the Flat White Cafe on Berwick Street was the first place in the UK to serve flat whites, it was actually imported from the other side of the world and originates in either New Zealand or Australia. This is apparently the subject of controversy and both countries claim to be the home of the flat white. I'm not getting involved. If you've only ever seen one Soho film in your whole life, I bet it was the Clifftastic Expresso Bongo. A few weeks ago, I posted a question on Twitter about Espresso Bongo, and not all the comments about it were positive. Words used to describe it were corny, naff and cheesy. And although our guest today might well agree with all of those descriptions, she wouldn't necessarily say these were bad things. Espresso Bongo had already been a hit West End stage show when the film version directed by Val Guest was released in 1959. The film too did extremely well at the box office and received two BAFTA nominations, one for Best British Screenplay by Wolf Mankiewicz, the other for Best Actor for Lawrence Harvey. The film is a broad satire on the entertainment industry and is set mostly in and around the coffee shops, delis and strip clubs of Old Compton Street. Johnny Jackson, played by Lawrence Harvey, is a fast-talking but always skint wheeler-dealer who sees himself as a high-flying talent agent. Unfortunately, he has no clients and his girlfriend, a stripper called Maisie King, played by Sylvia Sims, is becoming tired of his endless, fruitless schemes. Out of the blue, a golden goose falls into Johnny's lap in the form of a super-talented teenager called Bert Rudge. You and I know him as Cliff Richard. Johnny takes his new protégé under his wing, promises him a glittering career as a singer and renames him Bongo Herbert because... Bongo Herbert is a far cooler name than Bert Rudge. Despite the musical subject matter, Expresso Bongo isn't packed with musical numbers and the majority of them are sung by Cliff, although Harvey and Sims do get to sing a bit and are given, arguably, better songs. Hollywood glamour is provided by Yolande Donlan, aka Mrs Val Guest, who plays Dixie Collins, a big shot but somewhat faded American star. She too takes young Bongo under her wing leading to a power struggle between her and Johnny, with Bongo in the middle. Bongo. I just like saying Bongo. The film features a few notable cameos. Hermione Baddeley plays a myopic prostitute, and Gilbert Harding plays Gilbert Harding. Susan Hampshire's turn as an incredibly posh girl is very funny, and Burke Kwok and Kenneth Griffith also make uncredited appearances. When I asked our guest today, Seanad William, if she'd like to come on the show, and if she had a film she would like to talk about, there was no hesitation. It had to be Espresso Bongo. We're here with Sean Ed William, a writer and broadcaster, um, to talk about Espresso Bongo, which is possibly the best British musical film of the late 1950s. Yes, I think it probably is, actually, because it combines great writing, great performances, 
fantastic songs and a really great sense of place, which, of course, is Soho. When was the first time that you watched the film and what was your sort of immediate gut reaction? I think I saw it as a child because I saw so many films. There was very little on television when we were children in Britain. So there were tons of great black and white films. You know, I just saw everything. The Loneliness of Long Distance Runner, Taste of Honey, all these fantastic social realism films. But there were these odd things like Espresso Bonga that would be on at the same time. So I remember seeing it as a child, but I didn't really watch it again until fairly recently. And of course, it's a completely different film to the one that I remember as a child. It's, It's Obviously, now I get the jokes and I understand the satire, but it's equally sort of beguiling. So when we were chatting um, during the sound check, you sort of talked about, you know, the kind of harsh way it, it, it treats the music industry, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, because it's the thing is that uh, the film is about um, a young Cliff Richard playing the part of, of Bongo. He's actually called Bert. Rod, Bert Rudge, I think he's called, but um, they decide to rename him Bongo Herbert because that's moving with the times. Um, and it's it's a film about the fact that he is immensely talented. There's no doubt that he is talented. It's actually about the way in which talent like that is manipulated by people in a cutthroat world, by agents um, who compete with each other to exploit his talent. So it's a satire, if you like, on management and on agency and, and on the way in which talent um, is sort of fettered and exploited by by those agencies. And do you recognise any figures in your own professional life? <laughs> I'm glad to say I think we've moved on. Although, in fact, funny enough, I did read an essay about it fairly recently that was mm. saying in some ways it hasn't moved on, that you still mm. get that sense of exploitation, um, particularly when the talent is very young and inexperienced, that they do believe the first man or woman who comes along and says, I can make you a star. The film actually was a commercial success, um, particularly for Val Guest. It won two BAFTA awards. Um, Lawrence Harvey won Best Actor and Wolf Mankiewicz got the Best British Screenplay at the awards. And the film's tie-in EP record, which was, of course, mostly featuring Cliff Richard, <laughs> sold over 150,000 copies, which wow. was sort of a huge mm. um, coup d'etat for him. And it became a bestseller and it was on the UK number one charts. So it's interesting how I think, um, well, at least for many people, this film, as opposed to A Taste of Honey, A Loneliness of Long Distance Runner, and, and even Room at the Top, which of course launched La- Lawrence Harvey's His career, career yeah. is very much forgotten. Yes, I wonder if it's because also it's quite a funny film. Um, it's satirical, really, where those were social realism. They were trying to to talk about um, the new Britain, the, the sadness in a sense that it hadn't turned into this post-war utopia. So, And that was in the tradition of all those Italian realist films, Bicycle Thieves. Mm. And so they were kind of grander in their aspirations, where this was possibly regarded as a sort of cheap satire. I wonder. I mean, I think mm. things with comedy in them are never given quite the same um, that's true. Attention and respect as as some serious pieces, but that's just me being obsessed with comedy, possibly. We talked about sort of on social media that we were going to um, discuss this film, and a, a couple of people came out to say, you know, this is sartorial rubbish, this is nostalgic and cheesy, and I wondered how you position the film as this, as you said, you know, comedic. Sort of, it is. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's comedic genius. But. It's kind of got a cheesy name. It's got Cliff Richard, who, you know, when he was making this film, Cliff Richard was a young and up and coming star. Now we associate him perhaps with a more middle of the road kind of music. So, you know, he's the kind of music our, our mums liked. So, um, you know, possibly that association has devalued the film and a, a bit simply because, you know, it's not hip to like 
people, your parents, like, um, not because of anything wrong with, with Cliff Richard. His character is sort of at one end quite two-dimensional, but at the other end, you know, it takes a lot of ferocity to perform all those songs and yeah. to be charismatic. But do you think that his character arc is actually fulfilled properly? Like, do you think he has? I think he's very good at being this rather kind of pudgy-faced teenager you know who doesn't really think about anything and he just goes where he's told and he's he's a bit moody and I think he plays that really well um, and of course he was the British Elvis for a brief period people did scream and fawn over him um, and you know actually it's quite interesting watching this film to think what might have been if he hadn't taken a different path in life might he have become an actor because the, the summer holiday cliff is much more at ease than this cliff it does try and explore the roots of why there was this disconnect between the adults and the kids. And, and also, you know, he sings very well in it, actually. The, the, both songs, although the, the one about the shrine on the second floor or whatever is really horrible song. That's really creepy. You uh, strangled the old vocal cords very effectively, my boy. Do what? The old tonsil caper. Ah, that's nothing. It's the old drums, I fancy. I got the rhythm kind of natural, like. It comes natural. It's that golden voice you want to cultivate. Any schmuck can irritate those skins. I want to play drums. Well, um, perhaps I can arrange that for you. Now, look, let's discuss it over a cool Coke. But, in fact, a bit like me having a kind of slightly hazy memory of the film, you think, oh, yes, it's just a bit sort of um, light and frothy. But when you really watch it again, although there are moments that are longers and things in it, actually, it's incredibly sharply written. It is very satirical. It's full of fantastic lines. Um, it's got a great story, a great plot. Um, and it's actually about quite a serious subject. So I think it's um, extremely extremely underrated. Also, it has some great songs. It's got mm. a fantastic soundtrack. And it is difficult to sort of imagine that this was a massive hit at the time because it it, it feels that it's it belongs to the past. And it, it's also, it's stylistically, you, you have to kind of buy into it a bit, don't mm. you? It's not like a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical or, um, or, or Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. It's more of a kind of uh, a play with musical interludes and that's something else that you have to kind of slowly buy into as you watch the film. You have to accept the tropes of Hollywood musical being transversed into sort of this British context. Yes, yes I think that's exactly right. And, and, and actually there's a nod to Hollywood with mm. Yolande um, playing Dixie, this wonderful sort of um, star from America who has a, an entourage and wears these wonderful gowns by Balmain yeah. and, uh, you know, comes onto the stage and does... We don't actually see her sing, which I think is very funny. We just see the walk down the steps. But everything about her screams Hollywood, doesn't it? And yet, actually, it's this rather mundane reality that even she, in fact, is is ultimately, you know, not the star mm. she thinks she is. And, and um, Soho chews her up and spits her out, really, doesn't it? It's interesting um, because of her relationship with Bongo as well, just sort of this control mm. that she kind of wants to have over this younger artist as well in order to sort of preserve her own... Integrity? Yes, I don't know. It's well, it, I think it's a competition, isn't it? Mm. It's a, and, and quite a few critics have, have pointed to this homoerotic element that, that Lawrence Harvey 
you know, he's he's almost like he's he wants to own Bongo, and so does she. And and in fact, he's constantly being accused of having an unnatural attitude towards him. Ludicrous, obviously, to even use terms like that. But they, the, the Sylvia Sims uh, accuses him of of that, and um, you know, obviously, things that would not we wouldn't even think twice about these days. Um, but you know, actually, that was quite daring in 1959 uh, to even. Even make those sort of inferences was was very risque and daring, um, uh, but it, it does seem to be a competition, doesn't it, between two very powerful figures who kind of want to own him, and he has no control. And yet, weirdly, at the end, he beats them both. The Soho setting of the film. What 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 is your first you know experience of that area? Well, um, I come from Wales, so uh, Soho was always this um, mythical place that I didn't know until obviously I started coming to London, where of course by the time I came to Soho it had lost an awful lot of that character that was redolent in the 60s and and this film is is a fascinating document of that time and that opening tracking sequence borrowed by um, Absolute Beginners Julian Temple later, he's even got a sand dance I notice in that opening shot which is a tribute or a nod anyway to this film in which not only do you see the, the bars and cafes and delicatessens of Soho but you see possibly Wilson and Keppel without Betty, the sand dancers, um, and, and gets such a strong sense of, of the community and the people. Um, so it's one of the one of the films that's got the strongest sense of place that I've ever seen, really, because it just sort of oozes out of the, mm. the cafes. And there's that wonderful thing at the beginning where they're doing the title sequence when they put all the credits in menus and jukeboxes and uh, Wolf Mankiewicz, the writer, walks past with his name mm. on a sandwich board and he turns around and the director, Val Guest's name is on it. And it's all basically, it's kind of in the, the buildings of Soho. The whole film exists within the physical reality of Soho. Another interesting aspect of the film is the sort of the subplot of the sex industry of Soho becoming much more privatised, much less wholesome, much less tableau, stick figures, windmill theatre. We actually see a type of striptease that sort of half movement, half tableau. That's right, because in the windmill, obviously, they weren't allowed to move. Mm. They had to stay still. And and you do get a flavour of that with the historical tableaus that they do at the beginning. The strip sequence is just fantastic. It's the most, the least enthusiastic strippers I've ever seen. Not that I've seen many, but uh, I love this sort of deeply unenthusiastic Scottish reel that they have to do. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You can see it's becoming an industry and it, it is, um, and there's a great line, isn't it, where she says, there's so many bald heads out there. It looks like, look, it's like looking at an egg box, she says. It's a very funny description of these men uh, sitting, staring at her. It's, it is fascinating. Uh, and Sylvia Sims actually deserves a word of praise. She She's wonderful in this lovely singing voice, real charisma, and actually more than a match for Lawrence Harvey, which is which is fantastic. I wish I could hate your method of loving. I wish I could hate those dangerous charms. But what's a girl gonna do who hates to love you when she loves to hate in your arms? I'm longing to loathe your lovable laughter. But I don't know much about Sylvia Sims except I love her and she's in um, the world of Susie Wong and people forget that she is in the world of Susie Wong. And yeah, I mean, she's a great actress. There's a scene in the film um, between Sylvia Sims' character and Lawrence Harvey's character who are not cohabitating yet, 
although there is the kind of the promise of you know marriage even though they're sort of dating and they're sort of in love um i don't know to talk a little bit about what you felt that the way that it's filmed because it's very it's very very specific the way it uses sort of split screen and the way at the yeah. timing and the rhythm well it's definitely um again i i feel as though either the because there's a, the Rock Hudson Doris Day and also it happened one night which is the famous thing with Clark Gable and um, um, mm. oh my gosh I can't remember the name of the um, actress oh Audrey Colbert Colbert yeah where they have a, a, a thing down the middle of the room and it, oh, there's yeah. this so there are quite a few uh, films in which they have split the screen whether physically with a, uh, a the curtain or whether they've actually done it with trickery um, and, and that seems to be quite a common film trope but the thing that's great about this is that they're both telling each other that they're not coming over and yet they're both getting dressed and then one of them eventually gives in and starts to undress because the other one is coming over and uh, and then and then it all falls apart again and neither of them um, uh, they both have to undress again and it's a fantastically funny sequence and brilliantly done again because having I mean, to dress and, and do all this wonderful fast cross talk um, and it looks like it's all done in one shot as well. So it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. One of the things that I write about in my in my thesis about these films, um, particularly with Expresso Bongo Miracle Soho, who is the Jewishness, um, Val Guest, who was a Jewish um, immigrant, also called Lawrence Harvey's character part Soho, part Jewish. Yes. And I thought that just epitomizes his character very much because he sort of throws around Yiddish um, with Leon at the coffee bar. That's right. Wonderful crosstalk at the beginning. The guy who's lost all his money on the horses. It's very, it's beautiful. Um, there's definitely a lot of Yiddish with Shlemiel and, and um, oh, there's quite, there's some wonderful expressions um, about uh, how they've lost money on the horses and all that sort of thing. And But I think um, having read up a little bit about it, obviously Soho had as many Jewish people as the West, the East End. Um, certainly there were a lot of tailors shops, there were schools, uh, that Jewish delicatessen where you could get your salt beef and your... Um, in fact, I I was having to was drooling at the dinner that he buys at the beginning for Sylvia Sims for dinner. Uh, bagels with smoked yeah, salmon. Salt beef and, on rye. Yes, and, uh, and cucumbers, pickled cucumbers. Mm. And um, yeah, I love it because it's... it's And again, Pinter mm. very much used those rhythms in his plays. So it's quite a familiar British... Um, and American, to be fair, mm. you, know, you do get this in, in in great American movies as well. But it is particularly brilliant in London. Is these wonderful Jewish rhythms where the, the the it's smart, you know, the sentences are epigrammatic and clipped and and beautifully distilled, and and uh, everything leads to a joke. And the rhythm is, I love it when he talks to the prostitute and she says, "I can't see," and he says, "In you know, he says, that's it. In your business, better you don't see," he says to the prostitute, um, and they. Johnny's trying to get Leon, instead of having a jukebox, to have a real performer. And uh, they they have this long, brilliantly written conversation where Leon's just saying, no, 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 no. And then eventually Johnny gives him some money and Leon completely changes. Um, and then uh, the phrase in Mia 20 in the package, I think, is, is him talking about mm. the deal that they're going to do because he's actually... What Leon can't believe is that Johnny's actually got cash in hand, which is almost unheard of. Um, and it's just a wonderful expression and I think it's to do with presumably 20%, I imagine. Um uh, but again, it's this. Inc it, the the dialogue leading up to that is so fast paced and so full of character, and you know exactly. Who, it's it, there's no exposition in it. It's simply this 
argument about taking live act. No, I know who you are. You've you've done this me to me before. And actually, the dialogue just tells you everything you need to know about the people without it being heavily expositional. It's actually about you know, uh, deceit and about, no, this time everything will be fine. And it's a wonderful piece of writing. I just wanted to say one other thing, actually, while I'm talking about these early scenes. There's fantastic cameos throughout this film. And I don't know if you noticed right at the beginning, the very first person to speak in the film is a young Bert Kwok who yes, was Cato in the Pink Panther yes. films. And there's loads of other great cameos. There's Kenneth Griffith is the Charlie, the strip manager. Patrick Cargill is the psychiatrist on the telly. Mm. Susan Hampshire, who apparently was... Uh, she was the same part on the stage play. She was the, She's mm. a very posh girl. Hermione Baddeley, of all people, is the prostitute. So it's the most fantastic group. And Esma Cannon, one of the great comedians mm. of 40s and 50s British cinema, is the dresser. Uh, so it's, it's incredibly rich in terms of casting. Gilbert Harding. Oh, and Gilbert, Gilbert Harding, Harding playing himself. Playing yes. himself. Yeah, fantastic piece. A great performance again. He says, teenagers are regarded by the corporation with the deepest reverence, which is obviously a joke about... And it's so it, mm. it's really redolent today about people wanting to a, a, appeal to under 35s, you know, mm. which is a great mantra for everybody in broadcasting at the mm. moment. But it made, made me laugh out loud, that that uh, sentence. You think, oh, gosh, it was the same then as it is now. The obsession of the teenager is also a huge part of this film. Yes. Right? Appealing to the teenage market. The teen- Teenager and also what is a teenager? That wonderful expression where um, Cliff Richard says, "I'm just doing this for kicks." Um, this it's and 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 when Lawrence Harvey goes on television to be on Gilbert Harding's program, he tries to get down with the kids by saying "Hi, kids," and so he tries to speak the language of teenagers, which is mortifyingly embarrassing, but very funny as well. Just because we want a few kicks as well is no reason we should be unreligious. Oh, thank you, Mr. Jackson. Uh, there you have the... And talking about religion, kids, of... I don't want you to regard Bongo as a substitute, even though his latest Garrick recording, A Voice in the Wilderness, is the greatest you ever heard. I am speaking on behalf of both me Mr. and Bongo Jackson. when I say, go to church this Sunday. Me and Bongo often go together to the same little local church where Bongo was christened 18 years ago. How can he say those things? How can he lie so well? There with his mum and his little sister and his dad who have made so many sacrifices for him. Bongo gives thanks for all you wonderful people who have made his career possible. I never had it so good since the day I was born. And there's that great uh, Johnny's song, Walking Around Soho, I've Never Had It So Good. It's another great song. I struck oil, I never had it so It's brilliant. It's very funny. It's about snobbery, it's about class. And again, it's about manipulation. It's about being a star, behaving like a star. It's uh, It's got so many layers, this film, I have to say. I think it's... You know, I think it's a great, great film in many ways and, and deserves more praise. Thank you to Seanad William there for that thorough and thoughtful analysis of a film that she seems to think is underrated and undervalued. Do you agree? Tweet us on this or any other Soho or film-related topic at Bytes Soho or email SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow Shonad on Twitter. 
She's on at Sean Ed William, that's spelt S-I-O-N-E-D-W-I-1-L-I-A-M. And Nika Garrett tweets as at My London Tours. These details and more can also be found on this episode's show notes at sohobytespodcast.wordpress.com. If you'd like to treat yourself to a viewing of Espresso Bongo, the BFI website is a good starting point for all your Espresso Bongo-related needs. You can buy the DVD there, or if you can't wait, it's also available to stream. There's a link to the BFI player in the show notes. The next episode of Soho Bites is The God One. I spoke to Alex Hester about his father, John, who was the unconventional vicar of St Anne's Soho in the 1960s and 70s. And because one vicar is never enough, we have another one. The Reverend Liz Clutterbuck, vicar of the Emmanuel Church in Holloway, a member of Wittertainment Clergy Corner, joins us to talk about Miracle in Soho from 1957. Please join us for that and subscribe, share, tweet, retweet, like, pray, and all those other internet-y things that people do. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Jing and Young. You can follow Jingen and her new research project on Twitter at Cities in Cinema. That's it for this episode. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>